Hey everyone, hope you're all good and life is treating you well. I've ridden myself of coronavirus. My smell's a little bit off still, but apart from that, all's good. Actually, things are better than good. I'm pleased as punch at the moment, because I'm very happy to say that my book, A Dark History of Sugar, is now published. I got the email on Friday the 6th of May saying the books are on their way to anyone who's pre-ordered from the Pen and Sword History website. You can still order from there, of course, or from any of your favourite booksellers, in fact. North Americans, I have been informed that a great big load has been dispatched over the Atlantic. I know not the mode of transportation, but hopefully they won't take too long to arrive. I'll be giving away some copies when I receive my consignment in the next few days, so keep an eye out on my social media. Deets about that, if you don't already follow me, uh, will be in the show notes and at the end of today's podcast. For this episode and the next one, I'm going to be in conversation with food historian and friend of the show, Emma Kay. She kicked us off at the start of the season, way back in December, when I talked to her about her book, A Dark History of Chocolate. It seemed only right that I got her in to talk to me about the dark history of sugar. But the table has been turned because she interviewed me about sugar and its dark history. We chatted for ages. So I thought I would put out two episodes about the dark history of sugar that kind of loosely follow the layout of the book. So today we're going to be looking at making sugar, because that's the first half of the book. And in the next episode, we'll be talking about eating sugar, which makes up the second half of the book. Although there's a bit of cross-fertilisation in there, because of course you can't keep the two that separate. They're both very dependent upon each other. The book covers a world history, really, but for the podcast, we're sticking to the British bits, since it's the British Food History Podcast. Emma and I talk about sugar as a crop and its origins, evolution and early man and why man just loves sugar so much. We talk about the Crusades, sugar's move to the New World. We talk about African slavery and what lengths and depths the British went to control their slaves. And we talk about the sugar-making process itself, plus loads of other things. Well, now it's over to Emma Kay interviewing Neil Buttery about a dark history of sugar. What I want to say was thank you for letting me be one of the first people to actually kind of read your book. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's fantastic. And I think it's, you know, it's sugar is one of those things where it links into so many other things in history that it's such a fascinating, you know, integral thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's quite a web, really. And it's quite hard to unpick. And it took a lot of research and a lot of reading before I wrote a single word, just being able to kind of get it all fixed in my head. And even then, yeah. when I started writing, I realised it wasn't fixed in my head. So it was, it was quite tricky. And I was asked to write the book by pen and sword. I was just going to ask you, why did you decide to write it? It was, did they approach you and... Yeah, they approached me. So I had written about sugar before on my blog. My blog has very strict rules because I don't like blathering on. <laughs> you might be surprised to hear. <laughs> no. uh, the rule of my blog is a thousand words max. No one wants to read an essay. You just kind of want to read, you know, a couple of pages. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried doing sugar and I was like, no, there's, this is just, there's no way I can really do this on a blog because you've opened a can of worms when you've started talking about it. So I kind of left it thinking just only an idiot would write about sugar. <laughs> and then Pen and Sword History says, oh, we're doing a series about the dark history of food. And then what do I do one about sugar? Will you be interested? Yeah, yeah, all right then. And then you put the phone down and you go, oh, what have I done? This is going to be a nightmare. 
I just thought, oh, God, there's just so much stuff here I had no idea about, absolutely no idea about. So it was quite um, a learning curve. What, what subjects do you cover in the book? I mean, because everything about sugar is dark, isn't it? It is. What, what, how did you sort of hone it down into... I mean, obviously, there are lots of pleasurable aspects of sugar. There are other aspects. So you tell me, how did you, what subjects did you, how did you categorise it? Sure. You kind of, well, you, you start planning the the book and you're like, okay, I've got to cover how we got from discovering sugar or whatever to, to slavery. And it, so you got to cover kind of medieval times, making it, slavery, slave trade, the Middle Passage, Disindentured servants, exploitation, Liverpool and Bristol docks with all the slaves going through them. And there's the health stuff, type 2 diabetes. There's a manipulation of the companies like Coca-Cola company um, getting us to eat sugar, um, using our love of sugar, the nice side of sugar against us. So there's yeah. even the nice side of sugar is dark. You know, everything about yes, it was dark. Exactly. This colonialism, capitalism, it really began to snowball. I did get quite stressed at first, I will admit. The only undark thing is just the actual pure stimulation and, and taste, isn't it? If you think about it, isn't that like the only undark thing? Well, I mean, I don't think so. That lovely, sweet sugar taste switches a switch on in your brain, the pleasure centres, you think, oh, it's great. Especially if it's mixed with something flavoured. You know, a, a spoonful of sugar, it's, it's satisfying, but in a strange way. But a teaspoon of honey or a teaspoon or, or a boiled sweet made with peppermint oil, it transforms and it's just, oh, this is delicious. Which sugar on its own doesn't quite do. But when you have sugar, the neurochemicals in your brain start being produced and the main one is an opioid which is the same, same group of chemicals as heroin or morphine and it's addictive so you're crea essentially creating your, your own drug but at the same time oh it's great sugar's great great british bake-off making jam tarts with grandma or whatever you know we, we, we've got that in our head that it's great but at the same time yeah. wars have been fought over it slavery at least of, of africans and the slave trade existed because of it so it's this wonderful thing that we think is great, drinking pop, Ben Shaw's pop when you were a kid and, you know, all those great sweets. Mm. I, I quote Roald Dahl quite a few times in the book because he writes about how much he loves sweets so much. And I think that too. But at the same yeah. time, we are addicts. It's essentially a drug. Okay, we're not injecting morphine into our bloodstream, but we're producing our own. So mm. from the point of view of our physiology, it's splitting hairs as to whether it's a drug or not. The effect is the same. So we're pulling the wool over our, our eyes if we think it's, um, mm. if it's a, a, a sweet, in inverted commas, thing. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I came off sugar for a while. Oh, how did that go? Well, it, it actually started off as being, I, I actually felt quite euphoric for a while. And then I got really down because I was thinking, this is brilliant. Why am I doing this ago? And then suddenly I just started to get, yeah, a little bit depressed. And I'm not, I'm not prone to depression really that much. And I did get quite down and I felt like I was lacking something. It's a, it's a very typical response if you think about it. And I probably did it for a good couple of months. Well done though. Well, yeah, but, but then when I did go back onto it, I just went full force again. And it gave me such an incredible high. And then I just felt really um, dirty. 
I just felt a bit ashamed of myself. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I did go through, you know, different stages of, of, of different emotions and feelings. I think I think really the thing to do is to maybe not do it so drastically, is to actually sort of cut down slowly. But it's interesting that you say that because when we were in the wild, you know, when we're in Neolithic humans, sugar was fleeting. But it was so important because it's so calorific that we evolved to think about it all the time, to miss it when we're not having it, and to problem solve getting it, and to get it quicker than maybe the tribe next door. You want to do better than them, you want to get the energy and and be fitter in the Darwinian terms. So, you know, this is, so you kind of went through for a brief period, I guess, what um, early man was going through when Ray did all the hives and they were waiting a couple of months, I don't know, for some fruit to come in season they weren't going to see any more sugar and they were there going oh we're just yeah. thinking about sugar because they don't have it we've evolved to think about it i think you're right i think they are addicted and i think they are drugs and i wish actually i just stayed off it mm. because i think my body would eventually have just sort of plateaued and it would have been okay tell me where does the story of sugar stop no well a lot of people think sugar is a new world food because there was so much um, growing of it you know on the on the colonies but it actually could be traced right back at least the first time it was grown it could be traced back to new guinea 8000 bc wow yeah and they think maybe the new guineans got it from the philippines but people aren't quite sure they grew it just to eat as a snack just to chew on and they selectively bred it to be uh sort of thinner skin so it could be chewed and that was it really they had their own sources of carbohydrate they grew yams and they grew bananas, actually. So, you know, another commodity crop. They were pioneers of modern day farming in a way. And there they happily munched on sugarcane. But sugarcane's a, a kind of grass. So it's a bit like bamboo, I suppose, you know, you know really oh, large yeah. grass. And yeah. if you've ever grown bamboo in a garden, you'll know it's quite an aggressive weed. It sets out little roots into the soil and it just starts popping up everywhere. And that's what sugarcane does. It'll just happily mm-hmm. kind of move around and spread around and it spread to India or it was taken to India no one can be sure Mm. and it was in India where sugar as a substance I suppose was first made sugar being sucrose in this case how did they do that I mean what did they make it into a a syrup or yeah so they crushed it down as you would crush down um any kind of grain Mm -hmm. so you know with turning stones and they would boil it down to a sort of no, a, a brown sugar. Well, it goes by the name jaggery these days. If you cook much Asian food, you ask for jaggery, the unrefined yeah, sugar. Jaggery, yeah. um, that's not actually the Indian word. The Indian word gur, jaggery, oh. is an African word. Oh, and is it? Comes, okay. And it comes from the second wave, I suppose, of sugar hitting India when it was the days of the British Empire. They brought Africans with them to grow sugar yeah. as part of the empire. And the Africans yeah. brought the word jaggery. Okay, let's let's think about that age of discovery. So you get the Spanish and the the, the Portuguese, and they were sort of the first kind of na- big naval usurpers. Then you get the Dutch and the French. So what about the British? Your podcast is really focuses all about um, British food, doesn't it? So how does this fit in with with your kind of remit? Well, it takes a while to kind of get to the European countries it has to go through uh-huh. the Islamic Empire and they very happily grew it on in North Africa and traded sugar within the empire little bits you know ended up in in Europe but largely it was for their own consumption <laughs> then there was the Crusades 
in First Crusade, the Siege of Arca, which I think is 1104. See how mistakes you can spot, listeners, at the end of this when it comes to my dates. <laughs> the Christian knights were essentially being starved and they ate some sugar cane or some sugar and they thought, oh, this is great. And of course, it got them through it. They took some back and back to court and everyone's going, oh, yeah, this is nice. Didn't really think much about it. Second time, Eleanor of Aquitaine goes across mm. with, with, with Henry II. And she brings back, she's very influential. Yeah, extremely influential. I fact, perhaps uh, whilst Henry was alive and Hathri passed away, she had a big effect on her sons, Richard Lionheart and Bad King John, of course. You know, so the right, important, very important part yeah, of history. Yeah. She took it back. Not only did it get passed, you know, among, among the guys, but she brought it to her court and it got passed around the women. It really began to get a little bit of a buzz around it for the first time. So around Europe, the um, Teutonic Knights, you know, people are really kind of rich, aristocratic, religious, war-type guys. It's that Knights mm. Templar, kind of infamous yeah. Knights Templar. Put loads of money in and they said, right, well, we're going to um, start, we're going to take over the Holy Land, which they did, and we're going to start growing our sugarcane. And that's that's how it started. And as soon as you as soon as you've got Europeans involved, that's when it all starts to go wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's when it all starts going wrong <laughs> from the get go. Prior to this, in the Islamic Empire, you were growing your sugar, you were making your sugar like a little farm, like having a, a field of crops of grain and having your own windmill. The Europeans saw it. They went, "This is highly inefficient. Why is there all these little mills and all these?" Fields. What we need to do is we need to take the mills, make one great big mill or a few great big mills in the city. Mm. And so they uncoupled that kind of link immediately. And yeah. it's, it's, I think this is the first time where you got a city where the pollution began to make people ill. If you've got seven kilos of um, sugarcane juice, you have to boil away five kilos of water wow. to get two Plus, kilos you know, of sugar. I never thought of it like that. That must have had a, a massive impact on the environment and the local community and everything. But obviously... There's probably no real records about any of that. They probably didn't even know that it was doing any damage. It's funny. Saladin's nephew kind of comes back in, takes over the Holy Land again, and he just couldn't see, couldn't believe what he was seeing. They just wrecked the place. And so they went off with the tails between the legs, the crusading knights. Um, Obviously, there was more crusades and to and fro, but the important thing from our point of view is, but at least we know how to make sugar. So they set up more plantations on the Mediterranean islands. And what they were doing basically was deforesting Southern Europe to feed their furnaces. One plantation requires three quarters of a ton of wood per day. Wow. And that did not change for centuries. They would sort of deforesting um, Southern Europe. And instead of going, oh, we need to slow this down a little bit, what they did was, oh, we've cleared more land for more sugarcane. This is brilliant. This is a gift that keeps on giving. So they kept, they kept on going. Not aware of consequences at all then, were they? No. Not, you know. So, yeah, they trounced through Europe. This is very much the Portuguese and Spanish, by the way, at this yeah. point. Um, England has not got in on it yet. They might have put some money in at the beginning during the Crusades, yeah. but it's, it's yeah. largely left to foreigners. Yes. <laughs> so they, they basically they reach Spain and Portugal. They can't go any further. And, but they hop onto the Canary Islands and Madeira, deforest that, and then they hop over there. Yeah. And really what should have happened was, oh, we've run out of wood, goodbye sugar industry. 
And that's what would have happened mm. if Christopher Columbus hadn't popped over in 1492 and discovered mm. the New World. On Columbus's second voyage, he ends up on Hispaniola, creates Santo Domingo. Mm. In the hull of his ship, he's got, amongst all the other things, the settlers yeah. and everything else they need, a load of sugarcane cuttings. And they start growing sugarcane. And that's with, that's with the Spanish, although he's Italian himself. Yeah. That's with the Spanish. They'd been on the Canary Islands. The Portuguese, they end up going to Brazil as well. So it starts being produced down there. And loads of cheap sugar starts coming into Europe because there's loads of forests, there's loads of land, there's no cities there. They can just mm. keep on going. They're indigenous races, yeah. which they very quickly make extinct yeah. through overwork. Kind of met you said something about is it uh-huh. true that the, um, in the mm-hmm. West Indies, the first civilizations, they were they were largely cannibals. Oh the, the Caribs. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's, I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's one of, the, one of the great things about writing it. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll get there in a moment. The English saw that this is great. We want to get on, on this. And they took some of the lesser islands, you have the lesser Antilles, Barbados, Nevis, kind of ones that you, well, you've heard, we've all heard of Barbados, but other ones you might not have heard of, the Leeward Islands. They took it over pretty quickly mm-hmm. because the Spanish had just been using that for livestock and cheap didn't do very well on the islands, so it was just left. It, they, were called, they called them the useless islands, in fact. <laughs> and they took them over, <clears throat> and they wanted all this gold and spice and ivory that, you know, the um, pioneers had been finding in Asia and Africa. Um, sorry, in, in America and Africa. Yeah. They, find, they found none of that, so they started growing sugar. They use, all of, all of the countries use the indigenous races as um, slaves. The Taino, who were very peaceful, yes. went extinct in about 150 years or something like that, through overwork and through disease, yeah. smallpox, measles, whooping cough. Yeah, they died. It was very sad indeed. But, but yeah, the Caribs, even the little cannibals, they're great. I love them. They, they didn't go extinct, actually. You know, there's, there's still some small populations of them. They were never enslaved. In fact, they would just chuck themselves off a cliff. Wow. There was one uh, event where a couple of hundred, they were cornered and they just threw themselves off the cliff because they'd rather die than be become slaves. Oh, my God. So they're very proud. There's these tyrants coming into their country, killing them, raping their women, taking their land. They had no idea or no concept of land ownership. And these people were saying, you don't even own this land. It's like, well, no, we know we don't own this land. Nobody owns land. It's land. <laughs> they would sneak into plantations or into the big houses and they'd kidnap plantation owners or their, or their wives yeah, the or, the gen- or, the, or the generals or whoever, whoever was there and they would eat them, which was considered a great honour. I mean, we think of, you know, cannibals as kind of evil or cartoonish or you think of horror films, but in fact, an act of cannibalism was an esteem honour and you were taking, you know, it was a, a, a religious experience to go through. You know, it wasn't, they were all sat around a, campfire gnawing bones that you might you know some people might think however they did have a sense of humor at the same time because they'd send the the heads back all nicely grilled ready for them to <laughs> for them to eat which i guess must be the you know they're oh. sticking the two fingers up at them and and in a, in a most macabre and grotesque way from our point of view but i just couldn't help thinking when i was reading those things for the first time good on you good on you <laughs> yeah absolutely Absolutely. It's one way to tackle it, isn't it? 
another thing I found really interesting, actually, and I've, I've only done a, a little bit of uh, research into this myself, but you, you go into a bit more detail, which I find fascinating, is um, the life that the first sort of white settlers in, in places like Jamaica and, and how they kind of coped with the climate, the environment, the food, the insects. So they go in there thinking, yeah, look, yeah, we'll have a bit of this. But actually, the reality is that they found it really hard to deal with that environment, didn't they? It's funny that that chapter kind of came later in the book. Oh, sorry, not yeah. later in the book, like later in, during the writing of the book. Really, because after, after that part of the book, there's a good few chapters on slavery and it gets pretty depressing. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yes, it's, it is. Yeah. I believe, <laughs> I mean, the, the book, is, I, hope, I hope the book is, yeah, entertaining in, in the main and fascinating throughout. Um, yeah, yeah, I do hope that. But, you know, there's a couple of chapters where we have to get serious. Yeah, you have to tell the story. And some of the stuff is pretty horrible. I mean, we'll get onto that in a bit, maybe. So I, mm. I felt there had to be some kind of um, comic relief almost. And yeah. the planters did go through hell, but again, a little bit like I was talking about the Caribs before, I kind of was a bit glad they were going through hell because they were making it hell for so many other people. Really what I wanted to hear, the, the bad guys were just like suffering for it, yeah. you know, so it's not some, you know, something I'd really thought about that much. And I think it's, I think other people would be really interested to hear that as well. It was, it was, a, it was a time of great civility. <laughs> believe it or not yes. where the English because yeah. it's not the British Empire yet it's just the English thought themselves very civilised yet they were doing all these barbaric acts uh, they would turn up and they had to keep up appearances so they called it a perpetual blazing summer that was <laughs> a quote I can't remember perpetual who I'm quoting blazing there summer that's what it was and it was it would have been wouldn't it yeah but they had to keep appearances it's the end of the 17th century going into the 18th century everyone's wearing periwigs frock coats petticoats it's 40 degrees it's 100 percent humidity it's loads of layers (laughs) yeah Yeah, loads and loads of layers (laughs) and they were just they were keeling over fainting they couldn't handle it and then to make things worse they thought that the reason they were getting ill really was bad air at night. So they closed all the windows at night because they didn't want the bad air to get in. So it was stifling 24 hours a day. They stank, absolutely stank, apparently. Yeah, yeah, they must have They were eating roast beef with, you know, boiled suet puddings. They (laughs) they wanted to eat um, patisserie because patisserie was kind of just taking off little cheesecakes and, you know, things like that, which... Well, you know what it's like when you, you have even whipped cream when it's warm. Never mind, make a, some fancy bit of patisserie. And it all went off. They wanted to eat bread. The flour turned into mould and you yeah. made mouldy bread. But they still carried on eating it, even though you could make perfectly fine cassava bread. Mm. But they're not having that. That's what the natives eat. And so we're not having that. We're going to have some rancid gross bread instead because we're English. <laughs> right, that's the English way. Did they take their cook? out with them i mean it must have been a challenge mustn't it my goodness yeah there's a guy called richard ligon who was a very important diarist who, who spent a lot of time on the islands and he talked about one uh, one meal that he went to and the list of food it was like a henry the eighth style banquet you know there's three courses okay. and 32 dishes made up you know of each course you know, wow. that kind of frances yeah. a la frances service yeah. where you got loads and loads of food and they were they were eating like that because they were making loads of money and do you know what all the food was going off but they could afford to buy more yeah yeah they just didn't oh care it, they were making so much money 
It's shocking, isn't it, really? Uh, it just took that picture. It's great that you build that picture. I love the idea of them behaving really badly in every single way. Yeah, <laughs> they were violent to each other, violent to the indigenous people, obviously the slaves. Yeah. We haven't talked about slaves yet. I, I just It's fascinating. Just the psychology of that, you know, why people were the way they were is interesting, isn't it? It went on for so long, so mm-hmm. many generations of that, didn't it? You know, with, with that class and that, that level of, of severity in their lives. It's almost propaganda, you know, of like, yeah. we're the civilised one and we're improving the yes. savages. I know. Where the savages, in inverted commas, are sat there happily hanging out, being kind to each other, drawing mixed crops you know they're the they're the civilized ones let's face it it's such a brutal picture isn't Mm. it it carried on for centuries generation after generation it's just so weird that mindset isn't it i find it very hard to come to terms with but it's it's a fascinating part of our of our heritage anyway i I just want to just change tack a bit obviously the slaves were there to to cultivate and process the sugar so Mm. it'd be really great because your book sort of falls into to kind of two categories isn't it sort of the making of sugar and the consuming of sugar yeah and i, I just wanted to know a little bit about how that process of making sugar happened because it's quite a long process isn't it yeah and it's why everyone's there of course it's the whole reason yeah. people are there so there's several stages first of all there is planting the sugar cane where you just take a little piece of sugar cane and you plant it under the soil and it sprouts out little shoots. Now, the Portuguese and Spanish um, colonists, they were using oxen to do this. The English made the slaves do it entirely by hand with a hoe and um, a trowel. Cheaper? Why couldn't they have used animals? Was it just cheaper? Well, they'd learnt or they'd seen on Brazil, the plantations. The Dutch briefly took over some of the plantations yeah. and they, ha- they have a really clay soil and it's really slippy and you can't get oxen on there that just end up falling over they can't they oh, can't do okay. it so yeah. it was a means to an end over there but the um the english saw it and whether they just thought oh that's the only way to do it or whether they thought well, no this is a good way because we, we can control the slaves i'm not sure it's not it's kind of not in there but going by their future behavior i'm assuming it was to to help just break their spirits. They had to do it all by hand. That was always the intention, wasn't it, to just break them down as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, they, they, only, they only brought um, livestock in, you know, after the abolition of slavery. So, yeah, so, so, so that grows. It needs heat, I'm assuming. Lots of heat, lots of water, yeah. which yeah. is why Humidity. the West Indies were perfect. They grow back every year. You know, well, you can cut grass and it grows back. Yeah. That's what happens with sugarcane. You cut it, it grows back. It gets very, very thick. They'd be weeding. Once it got so thick, they couldn't get in there to weed. They kind of left it. Planting by hand is pretty back-breaking work, but yeah. it's, each stage it kind of seems to go up a level of oh. horrificness. Yeah. We've got the harvesting. The great big leaves on the sugarcane are sharp, and you would get lacerations. Even before you've started actually chopping them, chopping the stems off, you're getting cuts all over. People worked in pairs with a slave driver kind of goading them on, whip in hand. Whipping, yeah. And you, you cut them down. Usually the, it'd be a man and a woman, usually. The woman would kind of trim it down, and the guys yeah. would kind of lift it off. And their quota, it depended on which country, and which plantation you were. It was expected that they would get... F- maybe 4,000, 4,200 sugar canes per day between the two of them, Okay, which is just unbelievable. So that's dawn till dusk, isn't it? It's dawn till dusk, yeah, yeah. They were 
woken up literally at the crack of dawn. That's where we get the saying from. Right. Their Look alarm clock were the slave drivers cracking their whips to get him to wake up. So, mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, I'd, I'd never uh, equated that saying with that. That's amazing. There you it go. seems like such a, an innocent phrase, doesn't it? Yeah, we're so wow. used to saying that's it. fascinating. And if they didn't make their quota, they'd receive a moderate whipping. I'm quoting there. What? A moderate whipping. 50 lashes is a moderate whipping, which would put you out for at least a week. And now it's times of the essence. You had 24 hours to get the canes, pressed juice out and have it boiling because there's a lot of sugar in there. It starts to ferment, starts to go sour. So they would have oxes and carts to take the canes over to the, the mill and the boiling house. And there it would be crushed. There was an invention. I think it was on the, in Madeira. Before it was just like making flour. But now they've developed this sort of yeah. system with three cogs in a line. But one out of kilter, if you can imagine. The middle one out of kilter. So you could thread back and forward the sugar cane. Uh, okay. And that was powered by... Sometimes by, unfortunately, by men, uh, but sometimes by water, sometimes by by oxen as well. And they did not stop crushing. I mean, it was a 24-hour affair. They didn't stop. There'd be one slave feeding it in, another slave at the other side, passing it back a few times, pull the whole thing out and put a new one in. It'll go back and forth like that. If you're extremely tired and you're not concentrating very well, as, well, all the slaves were extremely tired, all you had to do was get a finger caught in there and you would be pulled in and oh. people died. This is 17th century and 18th century health and safety for you. The way they got around that was an overseer would be there with a machete ready to cut the person's arm off at the uh, shoulder. This is a time before, you know, real medicines or germ theory or anything like that. I mean, so, I guess they would have you know, cauterized them. Slaves were expensive. You didn't want to kill them. You just wanted to make their life as miserable as possible. They were a big capital investment, talking about it from a, you know, (laughs) a capitalist point of view. And what, in fact, what you'd often have is the people who'd lost their arms in the mill would be the overseer in the mill. So it'd be a constant reminder to everyone working there what would happen if he didn't concentrate. Yeah. Mm. So all the cane juice would go down through a funnel to the boiling house where there'd be a series of uh, five copper basins all getting smaller each time and the the boiler would be there very carefully watching it when it boiled down you know reduced by maybe a third the tip it or spoon it depending how gloopy it got into mm. the next copper getting smaller and smaller, smaller and again i mean it was stifling hot they must have had some awful lung issues as well um, although those things don't appear in the sources but i mean it's got to have been pretty bad Oh, and and that was just as dangerous, of course, because this is superheated syrup, 200 degrees. People would often fall into it because of the heat and faint because of the heat and the humidity. Or they'd just get these horrific burns, which would just get infected and, and, and they'd die. Oh, a horrible image, isn't it? Every single process of making sugar is, is just lethal, isn't it? So you end up with like a black, gloopy blob, yeah, extremely viscous. That'd mm. be poured into kind of upturned flower pots. That'd be left in a cool curing room and the molasses would slowly trickle out of the bottom. For a good while, they used all the molasses to make rum. Well, actually, they also fed the slaves some treacle as well to keep up their energy and they used it to make rum. It didn't really end up going back to England. It did eventually... Okay. And then what you'd have is hardened sugar in an upside down flower pot, crack the pot, and then you've got a sugar loaf. Sugar loaf is making an upside yeah. down flower pot shape. Yeah. And that would be put into hog heads 
or crates or whatever and stamped sent over to England off it went to be further refined at that point it was unrefined muscovado sugar we just, I just wanted to know a little bit about how they managed, you've touched on it a bit, but how they managed to kind of subjugate the slaves and keep them down. And then the way in which they sort of retaliated and, and mm-hmm. you know, managed that and came back and managed to, you know, keep their spirit to an extent. Okay, well, on, on the British plantations, oh, sorry, the English plantations, this is um, before 1707. The one thing the English didn't do, which the Portuguese and Spanish did, was... Christianization. The English didn't Christianize their slaves because they said, if we Christianize them, we can't, Christians can't be slaves. Yeah. So therefore, ergo, we're not doing it. I mean, I don't know how the Spanish and the Portuguese squared that circle of having slaves and Christianizing them. And think, I mean, the whole thing's just so messed up, isn't it? It's just hard. Yeah. It's hard to even get any kind of empathy for these people, I, I find. And I think also they, but they didn't want them to to do things like learn to read or learn to read the Bible because in the Bible there's knowledge and knowledge is power and there's all of that as well, isn't there? Really, they did everything to break their spirits. Everything they were, they were giving no possessions. They had obviously had their awful conditions, the yeah the whippings and the punishments. You know, for, for very minor things, they'd get nose and ears cut off. They'd be beaten. Yeah, essentially to a pool with broken bones for doing very minor things like letting, I don't know, pots boil over or something like that. So, you know, they were living, they were absolutely terrified all the time. So how they managed to actually uh, find some ways of empowering themselves or making their hell less horrific, how they did it, I don't know. If I was in that situation, all that I can think of was I would just die of shock or something. It's just really hard to try and imagine You can't even... You know, I do try and think about what it would be like. I, I have no experience of anything like that. So it's very difficult to try and put yourself in that situation, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's very hard to do. But the, the difference is, is in 1661 on Barbados, the planters assembled there and they decided that slaves were not humans, essentially. Yeah. Or at least not human enough to be judged in the same way as white people, as Europeans well, were. They had no intellect, I suppose. That was the thing that they, you know, they had no, they were just barbarians, weren't they? Well, that's that's what they told themselves. That's, yeah, that, exactly. You know. It was obviously untrue, of course, but um, that's what they told themselves. And I guess the more, the more you reinforce that, you know, the more convinced you can be yeah. of anything. Can't and the less guilty so that you're going to be when you've had to beat somebody to death. Unbelievable. And because of it, they did extremely cruel things. And I mention a few in the, in the book because I, I feel like we need to know the kind of things that they did. I, I mean, the, I, hope, I hope you agree I wasn't gratuitous about it. I didn't kind of want to labour the point, but I, I wanted people to know. And have some I think uneasy did it reading. Really, really, really well. Yeah, just some of those stories are great, but also, you know, I think it's really important which you did do as well is obviously to, to tell some of those stories about empowerment. You know, and some of the some of the revolts, some of the slave revolts. Yeah, sorry, I, I forgot to answer the rest of your question. Didn't I? Yeah, but so the great thing about not being Christianized, however, was yeah. they could keep on with their own traditions. Yeah, and they could do, they could sing and they could dance. I mean, it was eventually kind of quashed. You know, when people thought, hang on, they're having a bit too much of a good time here. But um, they did use song. They were encouraged to use songs during kind of very monotonous, laborious tasks. When the plantations got bigger, because as time goes on, plantations are getting bigger and consolidating. There was more opportunity to 
move away and hide and they'd have their own little little mini festivals very quiet ones i assume so no one caught them they did manage to do it but whilst they were doing that they were able to plot revolts really the 1661 Barbados Assembly, all, all that legislation, that all was made really because they were absolutely terrified of revolt. On the before before uh, the abolition, I think slaves were it was eight slaves to one white person. So the white people were absolutely terrified. Yeah. In America, later on, thirteen to one. So they had mm. to be so cruel because we can't give them an inch because they'll take a mile. So we've just got to go full on. It didn't always work. No. And some plots were, most plots were quashed usually by maybe a member of domestic staff because they had black slaves who were domestic staff too who heard about it and then told their bosses. That's what usually happened. So probably nine times mm. out of 10, which uh, I mean, it's easy for us a few centuries ahead of time to <laughs> to be able to say, oh, why, why did you do it? Why did you do it? Oh, we, you know, we want them to win. But, you know, they know that probably what would have happened, because all the successful ones were never successful in the end. They were always overpowered. They were punished in the most horrific ways. So those members of staff, it wasn't because they were having it easier at, you know, in their home. They were having it hard too. They were just going, no, we're choosing the lesser of two evils here. It's not going to solve anything and people are going to die. You know, pr- being pragmatic is probably just the best way to go. You know, as, as much as it might go against what you were really feeling being a bit utilitarian about your choices you know got you through it so all of this is going on it's inhumane behavior that we can't even really relate to what's really interesting to know is what what was the average person in england did they know what was really happening out there and if they did did they care you know sugar had become a massive thing hadn't Mm -hmm. it by Mm -hmm. the sort of 1700s i mean it started a lot earlier than that the 1700s, you have this big boom, don't you? And everyone is eating it and everyone is cooking with it. Yeah, so it's, it's got down to the middle classes at this point, maybe the upper yes. middle classes. They're not eating it every day, surely, yes. but everyone can afford yeah. it from the middle classes upwards. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, well, at first, okay, the new slaves were making it. There were slaves in Britain, black slaves, uh, African slaves in Britain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even though slavery shouldn't have happened, because, of course, where, where, what century was slavery? Um, stopped in in england 11th century something like that isn't it i'm not quite sure but it was absolutely it was ages ago i was going to start talking about roman and anglo-saxon but that's not even oh god no yeah it's completely different so it was it's completely different i mean yeah i guess it's a slavery light in comparison to what's going on to the poor africans and if, if you live in london or bristol or liverpool there was actually quite a lot of a few slaves had been freed and some slaves did um, escape and things like that. So you did have yeah. small populations of, of, of slaves yeah. knocking around. So from really late 17th century, you know, there was a small but significant population of Africans in Britain. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I've read lots of uh, stories and histories about immigrant populations and, you know, very broad, you know, from Africans to Alaskas to Chinese, to, you know, right across the board and we're going to leave it there thank you so much to emma k for stepping in and interviewing me she did a fantastic job emma will be back next week talking to me a little bit more about the dark history of sugar but emma's book a dark history of chocolate was published last year and her next book is almost ready for release and that looks great too it's a history of herbalism 
It's out in January 2022 and is published also by Pen and Sword History. So next week, well, we touch a little bit on the abolition of slavery, but we focus really on consumption, dental health, obesity, diabetes, advertisements, the tobaccification of sugar, junk food, sweeteners, and more. But anyway, it's time to go. Other than the book being out, there's not much to add this week. I did post, as promised last time, the cheese recipes on my blog. There's the liquid toasted cheese, based on a 19th century recipe. And there's the blue cheese ice cream with a medieval-style poached pear. At some point between this episode and the next, I'll be adding a new recipe, and a bit of history too, about the humble digestive biscuit. And that, my dears, is the Easter egg that goes with this pair of episodes. And because it's an Easter egg, it'll only be available to subscribers. Now, subscribers get access to my Easter eggs page with loads of bits and bobs, deleted scenes, extra bits, cut out bits. There's even an extra mini season on there. And there are those blog posts that are just for subscribers. You can find them on the blog by searching for the keyword term premium content or by following the link on the Easter eggs page. To start a subscription, go to the support the blog and podcast tab. A subscription is just £3 a month and everything I receive will go back into more content. Alternatively, you can donate a one-off virtual coffee or pint. In fact, you can donate any amount you like on there, so, you know, just saying. No, there's no pressure, of course, but please do like and do subscribe and please, please, please tell a friend or two and leave comments and ratings. I will be grateful and they really do make a big difference. To keep tabs on what I'm doing, go to BritishFoodHistory.com or follow me on social media. I tend to favour Twitter over Instagram, but, you know... Twitter might be on the wane, so I might be doing more Instagram. If you have any questions, comments, queries about anything from this episode or any episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact via email at neil at britishfoodhistory.com or on Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram at Dr underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Have a great week and I'll see you next time.